Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back, everybody, to the Third Reich History Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be taking on the second part of our series on the concentration camps. Uh, so if you haven't heard part one, uh, or if it's been a while since you listened to part one, go back and check that out if you're the type of person that really needs to have chronological continuity. Uh, in any case, today we're going to be covering the period in the camps from about mid-1934 to 1938 with the Kristallnacht pogrom. Of course, chronological order would in no way be important to historians. So, uh, <laughs> although depending on the book you read, you sometimes wonder. So uh, today, the, we're going to be hitting the changes in the groups that were being targeted as the camp system became a permanent feature in Germany. But to begin with, we really still have to get the entire system into Himmler's hands. I guess that's a good question to start with. How do we get to this point? where there is much discussion about scaling back the system. The wild camp period has been reduced to these large state institutions and Himmler is not yet in control. What is happening? All right. So in the, the early period, right after Hitler came to power, if you recall, it had been the, the time of these wild concentration camps that were set up in places like people's apartments and the pubs that the SA men frequented and they had really come after the communists in that period. But by 1934, the communists were effectively broken. And there was an attitude that the revolution was done. It was time to stop this kind of questionable, extra-legal, quasi-legal uh, incarceration of people. And the system was, was starting to scale down. There had also been some scandals, you know, murders inside the camps, which had drawn attention of legal authorities that were not quasi-legal authorities, that they, they were, the formalized law uh, was still continuing from the Weimar period. In any case, it looked like the camps were on the way out. But in 1934, Himmler would, would reposition what the camps were for, what they might accomplish, and in that way he would prevent them from disappearing from the Third Reich altogether. Of course, Himmler still had to get himself into a position where he had control of all of the concentration camps that existed in Germany, even as the system was shrinking. We've talked about this on other episodes about the competition between Frick and Goering over the Prussian Gestapo. And they were, in fact, like we talked about last time, the ones who were primarily concerned in reducing it. But Himmler came to control the Prussian Gestapo, which was the final piece in the puzzle that he needed to complete his control of all political police services across Germany. 
basically based on a compromise between Frick and Goering to vest power over political police in Prussia and somebody that they could both trust and both felt like they could control in some way. So we know how that eventually turned out, but this is how Himmler finds himself in early 1934, finally in charge of all of the political police institutions across Germany, save for, I believe, one small, one, either one, I think it's one small state. Regardless, he has all of the major ones, and he's finally in that position where he can apply his Dachau model of him being in charge of the camp guards as Reichsführer SS and being in control of who's being put into the camps as the statewide commandant of political police. That takes us up to the point where the camp system goes from contracting back to expanding. An important uh, moment in uh, that process, uh, the, the transition, was the Night of the Long Knives, the murder of uh, Rome, the head of the SA, along with other problematic individuals uh, who uh, had either advocated a continuation of Hitler's revolution or, you know, had had been uh, thorns in the side of the movement. Well, the camp system would be kind of directly involved in the Night of the Long Knives through the person of Theodor Eicke. Did we talk about Eicke last time? We mentioned Eicke, but we did not really go into his legend that really begins to be built with the Night of the Long Knives. So, this Ica character, if there is an individual besides maybe Himmler who is instrumental in the development of the concentration camps, it was Theodor Ica. So, what happened with Ica? Who was this guy? Uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that there had been some controversy about uh, extra legal murders inside the camps and you know, Himmler had run afoul of the Bavarian government because of some murders that were under investigation. And the, the governor of Bavaria, an interesting fellow by the name of Von Epp, dibs on a Von Epp biography. I've already started on it. So mm-hmm. any of you out there in podcast land that were even considering it, mm-mm. I, I, I'm going to do that one. In any uh-huh. case... Uh, Bonnet put put some pressure on on Himmler to to do something about these uh, alleged murders, and Himmler responded by sacking the commandant of Dachau, and he needed somebody to replace the commandant, so he looked to this guy, Theodor Eicke. So Eicke had a bit of a checkered past. Before Hitler came to power, he was was literally a bomb-chucking Nazi, that he had been arrested for arranging to attack some political enemies with explosives. And uh, he was supposed to serve a couple of years in prison, but uh, he had some connections through the party who were able to help him escape off to Italy. So he managed to not serve any sentence for that whole bomb affair. But once he got back, he got into another dispute, this time with a, a high-profile National Socialist, the Gauleiter Joseph Berkel, uh, who had him arrested again, and this time it stuck, and he wound up in this mental asylum. And uh, Himmler also took away his 
SS membership, uh, stripped him of his rank, uh, and it looked like that was the end for for Ica, at least uh, career wise. As we talked about this this tendency that Himmler had uh, in the episode about Heydrich. Himmler liked to give people second chances because that created a lot of loyalty. So he tapped Ica to become the new commandant of Dachau, uh, and 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 gave him this this second lease on a career. Well, uh, Ica still had to you know, demonstrate his loyalty. Uh, so when the Night of the Long Knives came around, uh, Himmler looked to Ica to. Uh, handle the most high profile of the victims. Uh, that's Rome himself. The head of the SA. Yes. The number one target of the Night of the Long Knives. So the Night of the Long Knives is also sometimes called the Rome Putsch. Ica confronted Rome after Rome had been arrested uh, in his cell. He and his number two man gave Rome a pistol with a single bullet in it, told him pretty much, you know what to do, you have 10 minutes. And then they left the room when they hadn't heard a shot within 10 minutes. That is when Rome had not killed himself. They sent somebody else in to retrieve the gun and then went in and shot Rome themselves. And this turned Ica into something of a legend, particularly amongst the staff of the concentration camps, that he was the guy who had shot Rome. Yeah, he was the one who had dealt with the arch traitor, the former comrade who had betrayed Hitler by trying to push for the revolution. And he was the one who had pulled the trigger and dealt with this betrayal. Right. You know, if there were any doubts about him and his loyalty before this, they evaporated after that. And the whole affair was instrumental in advancing Himmler's position in increasing Himmler's stature, showing Hitler that Himmler was reliable, and uh, also in positioning the SS under Himmler to take on the place of the SA, which had been led by Rome. In fact, it had been the SA that had been running a lot of these concentration camps beforehand, and after the Night of the Long Knives, the SS began to move into these camps and take them over from the SA. Yeah. In fact, just a few days after the Night of the Long Knives, Himmler creates the Inspectorate of Concentration Camps and gives it to Ica. So Ica goes from being the commandant of Dachau, the model camp, to being the man in charge of the entire concentration camp system in Germany such as it is and such as it remains in summer of 1934. Yeah, he became the inspector of concentration camps, which is a position that would remain until the end of the war, although he wouldn't occupy it until the end of the war, as the person that was overseeing all of the concentration camps in Germany. And he was confirmed in this position three days after he shot Rome. So there's a connection. <laughs> of course, as you might imagine, this leaves Himmler in something of a predicament so far as the camp system is concerned. The Night of the Long Knives was intended to be the final signal that the revolution was over and that law and order was finally being restored to Germany. That was the whole reason that Hitler had been essentially forced into the confrontation with Rome by Hindenburg. However, Himmler now finds himself in this position where he wants the concentration camp system because he finally has it under his control. He finally has this instrument that could afford him great power, but all of the powers that be 
Goering, Frick, Gertner in the Ministry of Justice, in the Ministry of Interior, and as the Minister President of Prussia, are all scrambling to present themselves as agents of law and order by closing the camps. So over the next year, the camps actually continue to shrink as Hitler is distancing himself from them in public. They're unpopular institutions, and obviously Hitler cannot be seen to be continuing this state of emergency now that it's finally supposed to have ended. And so the number of prisoners inside of the camps shrinks to the lowest numbers that it will reach during the Third Reich, just over 2,000 detainees. So how did Himmler turn this around? He gets Hitler on his side, but what was the impetus for, for Hitler to change his position here vis-a-vis -vis the camps and law and order? Well, Himmler really possesses a powerful argument that the reason we have managed to crush communist opposition is because we use the camps. And now that we're releasing everybody, we're creating a situation that is just as dangerous as the one we just mastered. So great, we went and we dealt with the revolutionary threat to Germany, and now we're just going to let it all back out into the open again. So this carries a lot of weight with Hitler because he distrusts lawyers. He is not a man who believes in constituted law. He believes in common sense and allowing principles and general guidelines to rule the day so that there is this kind of room for maneuver and you're never pinned down to anything. So this puts him at loggerheads with his minister of the interior and his minister of justice, both of whom are committed Nazis, but both career civil servants and lawyers. So Himmler, who has performed this great service in crushing the, the potential challenge from Rome and is now saying, well, what are we doing? We're, we're, going, to we're going to release this threat again, begins to win Hitler over. So even though he's remaining distant in public and he is continuing to present himself as an agent of law and order, plans are beginning to take shape behind the scenes along a couple lines. First, how Himmler might be rewarded by being made the first chief of German police, the first chief of a, a nationalized police force, rather than the old way with all of the local police forces being run by the individual German states. So creating a national police force, giving that to Himmler, and reviving the concentration camp system to give him the tool that he needs for Hitler's aims. And this really is, from Himmler, an entirely a new take on what the camps should be. They had emerged in, in 1933, after the Reichstag's fire, as an emergency measure, that the extension of protective custody to pretty much anybody was supposed to prevent a communist revolution. Now, Himmler's talking about using both the police and the concentration camps to reshape German society as an instrument of long-term social control, something that is proactive rather than reactive. But the goals that he was trying to meet, these long-term goals with the camps, went beyond suppressing communists. They looked to 
changed the social structure of the country. And that meant going after people for non-political offenses as well. Oh, well, in a regime like Nazi Germany, where everything is weighed in relationship to whether or not you fit into the vision of the people's community, apolitical actions take on a political connotation. Yes. So these conversations begin as early as February 1935, while the camp is still shrinking. Uh, Hitler meets with Himmler, and Himmler begins to look for support against Frick's continued efforts to scale down the concentration camp system. Himmler shows up and presents a memo that he received from Frick telling him to release more prisoners from the camps. And Hitler's response to this is very clear from the note that Himmler makes in the margin, which is quite simply, the prisoners are staying. So talks continue to develop. And by June, Hitler is telling Himmler that the camps will be needed for years to come and actually goes on to approve giving the SS camp detachments, machine gun units in order to keep order in what at that point is already starting to indicate a much larger system. If you need a machine gun to keep order, you're talking about a lot more prisoners than you can, that you need to watch over than if you just need a rifle. And there's also the idea that's just starting to develop here that the people that are guarding the camps are soldiers, that they could be used in wartime, that they could be used to suppress revolution, that it's more than, than just keeping a couple of communists under lock and key, that, that this is an organized and potent force, that if you give them weapons and training, then they will be quite useful in the future. Yeah, the first indications of the changing idea of the camps from an institution of rehabilitation to a battleground where political soldiers confront the enemies of the people. By July, we're back into discussion between Himmler and Hitler on mass arrests of KPD members. So the idea here being that, okay, so we've captured a lot of communists who were involved in seditious behavior over the course of 1933. And some of them were so scared by the camps that they immediately went home, dropped all of their political activity and tried to just keep their heads down. We don't need to worry about them. The ones that we need to worry about are the ones that we picked up, put in a concentration camp, and then they went back and they started to try and distribute pamphlets again. These recidivist political activists, these are the ones who constitute sort of this hard core of a political threat that Himmler and Hitler are both concerned about. So the discussion then is, well, let's just pick them all up again. <laughs> and uh, this, this is where we begin to see the numbers hit their low point and then start to rebound. By fall, October 1935, Hitler is agreeing to the unification of the entire police, uh, the entire German policing system underneath Himmler as its head. And the discussions then begin to look at how the police might be used as an instrument to inculcate Nazi values into German society. So you start to look at, well, let's move against abortionists. Let's move against these so-called asocial groups. Habitual criminals. Right. But I mean, if you're going to 
expand the purpose and scope of the concentration camp system and turn it into a tool for basically social control and to an extent social engineering, you're going to need more camps than exist at the time. So plans begin as a result for a large scale expansion of the camp system. This is when we see the dedicated camp designs come into being and the names that we associate with Nazi terror being founded. So like Chris has talked about earlier, a lot of the early camps were wild or they were state institutions or they were created and then closed down again. This is when we get semi-permanent institutions that are built in a way that means they can be continually expanded. There are a lot of choices in, that are made in the design of these places, like Sachsenhausen and like Buchenwald, that show the thinking is that this system is going to be much larger than everything that has existed before. So at a time when there are less than 5,000 prisoners in total in the concentration camp system, the Inspectorate of Concentration Camps begins to build two new camps with a planned capacity of more than 6,000 prisoners each. The design choices are that concentration camps should be in an isolated location where they are out of the public eye. They should be built in a way that they can easily be extended, and they should be built in a way that isolates them from the rest of the community. So there should be more internal facilities that prevent prisoners from interacting with society at large. So that doesn't mean that there aren't differences between the different types of camps that are being built at this time. Uh, Sachsenhausen, for instance, is they experiment with a, a sort of wheel kind of design where there is a semicircle of barracks around the central muster field but they find that this is too difficult to extend outward because essentially the camp can only grow exponentially as you go out on a semicircle. And instead, what we see is that camps like Dachau and then Buchenwald, where they decide on this sort of square modular layout, where if you ever need to expand the camp, all you need to do is clear another hectare, you know, throw up some fences, slap down the these rudimentary bunkhouses, and you can essentially modularly build out the camp as the population continues to expand. And the most wonderful thing from the point of view of the people looking to expand these concentration camps is that they have a workforce right there to do all of this construction. And throughout the life of the camps, it would be the prisoners building out the camps so that they could hold more prisoners. And uh, the construction work was notorious uh, for being some of the, the most brutal work that you could get assigned in the camps. Yeah. And other types of work start to be carried out within the walls once they go up as well. You get the creation of workshops where, and where the laundry is done internally, the tailoring is done internally, the, any, any repairs, cobbling, things like that. All of that is done within the camp. So there, there is this attempt to create an enclosed world that no longer has points of contact with the rest of Germany. Even the choice of locations with a place like Buchenwald is somewhere in the middle of nowhere. I think it was only, what, four or five miles from Weimar? but it is in the forest, that is the, the Wald of Buchenwald. 
Right. Well, and they choose the forest because nobody else is there. And obviously it's close enough for the, from the guard's perspective, but it is completely isolated from the perspective of the prisoners and quite famously has the ancient oak tree that is supposed to have, uh, is it an oak? Inspired Goethe? I've never heard that story. That's interesting. Yeah, man. Buchenwald. Oh, this is supposed to be the poetic, the poetic injustice of Buchenwald concentration camp is that the, the tree where Goethe is supposed to have met his muse was within the site of Buchenwald concentration camp. That's something. Right? Uh, anyway, from this initial population explosion that's focused on political recidivists, we see the shift to targeting so-called professional or career criminals. These habitual criminals had not been in the camps before. Originally, the purpose had been for political crimes. And by habitual criminals, we're talking about people who had engaged in property crimes that had stolen things, been arrested, been let go, stolen something else, been arrested again. Uh, people with a long criminal record. And as the camp's function shifted from dealing with political emergency to dealing in social engineering, they began to bring in these habitual criminals who would be rounded up in raids in the mid-1930s. And they would quickly become the second largest population in the camps after the political prisoners. It wasn't just people who had had a long record and got arrested again. Uh, it was also people who had a criminal record, but who were unemployed at the time. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a matter of you've already got two strikes. The next time is your third strike and you're, and you're going to go to the concentration camps. Yeah, the move really begins in March 1937. So there was this longstanding theory in German policing that the majority of property crime came down to a small group of professional criminals and fences, and that if the police were allowed to act against this group, then that would mean that essentially crime rates would drop across the board. This actually goes back to Willi Gay and the concept of preventative policing that was quite popular in the Weimar Republic. Gay was a police officer during the Weimar Republic who wrote a prize-winning essay on preventative policing and criminal technical measures actually ended up getting him a position at the Reich Ministry of the Interior. And he's the one who laid a lot of the groundwork for the federalization of criminal policing in the Weimar Republic that then the Nazis ended up taking to completion. The essay that he wrote is actually called A Hard Fight Requires Sharp Weapons. We are struggling to create them. So that should give you a general idea of where his, his mind was at. But actually, a lot of his suggestions about targeting fences, targeting repeat offenders, creating a recognition system, and most importantly, the suggestion of preventative detention were eventually enacted by the Nazis. So the directives that go out in March 1937 are to be very widely interpreted and the police essentially use it as an opportunity to round up anybody that they feel that they know is guilty, but they don't have enough evidence to arrest. This is Himmler is worried at this time that 
essentially crime rates haven't gone down enough. The early targeting of around like 150 to 500 uh, of these so-called professional hereditary or career criminals did not make enough of a dent in crime rates. So they take this preventative approach to anybody. This is supposed to be a final confrontation with criminality in Germany that will get rid of essentially the entire underworld. And by December 1937 is finally written into the directives for concentration camps as one of the permanent reasons that somebody can be pre uh, preventatively detained in camps. With this, the whole presentation of the camps starts to shift. The most famous article in this vein is a feature piece about the Dachau concentration camp from late 1936. And historians often point to it as a bookend for this turn. So the feature makes a point of differentiating earlier populations and the current uh, detainees in the camps. It says, quote, these are no longer the political inmates of 1933, of whom only a small percentage is in the camp, while the rest have long since been released. But for the most part, a selection of asocial elements, recidivist political muddle heads, vagabonds, work-shy persons and drunkards, emigres and Jewish parasites on the nation, offenders against morality of every kind, and a group of professional criminals on whom protective custody has been imposed. Propaganda takes this theme of dangerous criminals locked up for the good of the Volksgemeinschaft and really starts to run with it. So the general attitude that the camps are there to rehabilitate people, albeit always interpreted as forcing compliance through hard labor and humiliation and military discipline to break someone's spirit. Nevertheless, that idea that you're rehabilitating people in the concentration camps falls by the wayside and is replaced with this idea of permanently detaining people who are too dangerous to be in public. Death is still not a, a defining part yet. You, you have about five people dying a month in the large camps in 1937, each of which is holding around 2,300 men each. But all of this starts to change as the entire system starts to take on economic motives. Up to this point, while the function of the, the camps was supposed to be rehabilitation, there was an idea that uh, work is, some, is a tool for rehabilitation. That if, if you do labor, it is a form of punishment um, and it's a form of education. That you can, can learn to do good work by doing good work. This started to change in 1937 and 1938. The SS began to reach out into some business enterprises. And it's, it seemed like this captive population of people was an ideal workforce to power these new businesses from within the camps. So whereas they, the camps had been isolated uh, from the rest of society, now they were supposed to touch the rest of society, but as a productive force, not just providing for themselves by expanding the camp with prison labor, but by producing finished goods that could be sold to make money for uh, the SS. And there was a lot of experimentation in this realm that the workshops in some of the camps started turning out leather goods, that kind of thing. The SS bought up a porcelain company 
and started uh, manufacturing porcelain in Dachau. But the big operation uh, that would be set up in the camps was spearheaded by the German Earth and Stone Works. Uh, this was a company that was supposed to furnish stone, marble, for the grandiose building projects that Hitler had in mind, or rebuilding Berlin as Germania, the, the capital of the world. And the quarrying stone is some pretty intense and backbreaking work. So the prisoners of the concentration camps would be pointed towards this enterprise. But the thing is, uh, you can't just quarry spectacular marble, marble blocks uh, anywhere. They are located in specific places. So in order to pursue this objective of putting prisoners to work, producing building materials, some new camps were constructed on sites that already had the, the raw resources, camps like Flossenburg and Mauthausen. And uh, the prisoners would be, be put to work. Now, these projects weren't terribly successful for actually producing wealth for the SS, but it did mean that the day-to-day -day lives of the prisoners was going to change. And in some places, they, they would go through real harrowing experiences in these quarries. There's the uh, famed you know, stairs of death where prisoners had to carry these big heavy blocks up out of the quarry and would regularly be kicked off them by, by guards. In any case, the idea was that these, these were going to be real businesses that were going to make money for the SS, but the result was just to further degrade the quality of life for prisoners. For that reason, and because of how hard the work was, it was the career criminals who primarily were selected to do the quarrying and to do the, the heavy lifting that was involved at Mauthausen and at Flossenburg. Overwhelmingly, those were the camps where the green triangles, as they were called, the career criminals, were concentrated because they were seen as these dangerous people that were beyond being rehabilitated. And therefore, there was this sense of poetic justice in having the worst offenders do the hardest work. There are, is also the disastrous experimentation with dry press clay bricks as well. Nobody bothered to check whether the clay at the build site was of the appropriate quality to be used in the particular production process that they were intending. So they bought these massively expensive state-of-the-art machines that were going to prove that the SS was the wave of the future and the managerial Superman who, you know, was going to turn all this prison labor into productive output for Germany and it was going to produce bricks for these huge megalomaniacal construction projects. And then the moment the first batch came off, the bricks crumbled in their hands and you know, they, they certain they suddenly learned to their chagrin that they couldn't do the type of production process that they wanted to do there. So I don't know how to explain it. it it's, a it's a reflection of the madness that was this system. Yeah. 
that they thought that they could rebuild German society and make money while they were doing it by locking people up in brutal conditions in these camps. And then they never even bothered to do the basic things like check whether the production process would work at what they were planning to do. Just this idea that through sheer force of will alone, because we're going to do it, it's going to work out the way that we intend it to. The futility, like the, just anyway, the arrogance of the SS. I think that's a good word for it. So at this point in 1938, we also get the influx of what was to become the largest population group and the largest victim group up until the Holocaust, the Black Triangles. The asocials and the work shy. This category was kind of a catch-all for, for all of these different marginalized groups, people that were, were generally looked down upon by the rest of society, vagrants, beggars, welfare recipients, prostitutes, pimps. And the idea was that first you could clear up, clean up the streets by removing these kinds of people for it so that when you go to the train station, you don't see a, a beggar there when you arrive. There was a wave of arrests before the 1936 Olympics because you know the entire world was coming to Germany's doorstep and they didn't want them uh, seeing all of these you know, unwashed peoples walking around. But the, the big push would come much later. 1938 saw the institution of so-called Operation Workshy Reich, in which the Gestapo, the police, and welfare agencies all cooperated to funnel anyone who was seen as sort of lost to the Volksgemeinschaft into the concentration camp system. The scale of this is something that you need to wrap your head around because this is the first time that we start to see waves of death become part of the concentration camp system rather than it being individual cases of abuse or neglect. So from April to June, 1938, 10,000 asocials were arrested and 9,500 of those were in the month of June during the special action alone. The vague directives were for tramps, whores, alcoholics, and those who refused to integrate into the Volksgemeinschaft, which of course is where you start to see a large group of Sinti and Roma being targeted because of the itinerant lifestyle. So all of a sudden in 1938, asocials come to constitute 70% of the camp population. That goes down, but it remains above 50% right up until 1939. This brings on huge overcrowding issues where you're trying to jam four people into space that previously would have been reserved for one. And as you can imagine, starvation and disease from this overcrowding begins to become an issue. So the death tolls begin to mount for the first time, really. It's common, but it's not yet routine by summer 1938. So Voxman's numbers show that there are 90 deaths from January to May before the operation begins, right? To put this in perspective. But from June to October, that number skyrockets to 493 people, 80% of whom are so-called asocials. That continues to rise to 12,000 dead by 1939, making them the largest victim group prior to the Holocaust. 
which neatly takes us to Kristallnacht, where we're going to end this chronology. <laughs> I would just like to point out with the death rate here in 1938 that we're talking about a 1.5% death rate per month amongst the population of the concentration camps, which is a rate that in 1944 you're seeing a like two or two or three percent death rate per month uh, so for this period this this brief period of time during peacetime the attrition rate in the camps is almost as high as it will be during some of the better months of the war right so this is the first indication that overcrowding starvation and disease will be a cause of immense suffering in the future but is nowhere near what we will arrive at later However, it bears notice the first appearance of this kind of wave of death. Yeah, brought about by conditions that will be repeated over and over again. When the capacity of the camps is strained, the death rates go up. So let's get down to the micro level here. How were the camps organized? Well, the camps themselves are, are run by Camp SS. And the, the Camp SS is unique in that it was an independent branch of the SS. There was the Allgemeine, the General SS, and there was the Verfügungstruppe, which would later be the Waffen-SS, so the, the armed contingent of SS. And then there was this third branch of the SS, the Death's Heads Units, as they were called, the Camp Guard, who had their own ranks and hierarchy independent from the rest of the SS. And the people that would fill out these death's head units were recruited from the pool of part-time SS members from the general SS, particularly those who were very, very young, some straight out of the Hitler Youth Organization. And they were offered a job, employment in the death's head units and pay. And by the mid-1930s, there were about 3,000 people that were members of the, the camp guard uh, of the, the death's head units within the SS. And all of them uh, came under the leadership of that inspector of the concentration camps, Theodor Eicke, who and we've already brought up, but, but he was another one of these ultra ambitious figures that you see dotting the third Reich uh, that hoped that he could expand uh, the scope of his organization. So in addition to its regular duties supervising the concentration camps, ICA also instituted a program of military training for the death's head units beginning in 1936. And uh, his idea, embraced by Himmler and, and Hitler, was that this training would make them ready for any kind of emergency, a, an uprising, a revolution, an internal threat to the state that they might have to put down. But as war seemed to be more and more likely, uh, Hitler looked to the death head units as potential frontline fighting force. And he ordered that the concentration camp guards should act as a reserve for the Verfugungstruppe, the independent SS military. And towards this end, the ranks of the uh, concentration camp guards 
would radically expand, uh, expand out to 50,000 people just before the beginning of the war to the point where there were two guards for every prisoner and they would go through a rotation where they would spend, spend a week in the tower outside of the camps, supervising the camps, and then they would be going through training and military drill the rest of the time. And once the war began, the, the death's head units would actually go off and fight at the front line and create a situation where people would go off and fight at the front and rotate back to Germany, work in the camps again, and then go back out to the war once again. And Ica uh, himself, whose ethos was that he was going to lead by example, that he wasn't going to ask people to do anything he wasn't going to do, uh, went out and led these divisions, and, and he would be killed in combat in the Soviet Union in 1943. But, of course, that, that's wartime, and you know, we, as historians and sticklers for chronology, we're not really talking about that yet. So uh, let's, let's take it back uh, and, and dive a little bit deeper into the Camp SS and, and what they were, what their, their ethos was, uh, and how they were trained. There were several different categories of death's head personnel. The regular rank-and-file were the guard troops. So the function of the guard troops was to work outside of the camps. So they were not coming into regular contact with prisoners. They were overlooking the camps from from the outside up in guard towers and such. And they tended to be super young. Uh, These were the, the kids that were coming out of the Hitler Youth. We're talking about 16 years old, 16 to 20, and Ica was even a little reluctant to take on people that, that were 20 years old. He wanted people that could be molded, that were, were young and receptive to these ideas that they were pushing on them. And they were taking a job. They were going to get paid. They were supposed to be volunteers. They were they were there because they wanted to be there, because they wanted to be the political soldiers for the new thousand year Reich. The training was incredibly intense toward that end. They were being drilled by veterans of the World War who would sort of harass them and humiliate them. The goal was to try and weed out the people who, I guess, were more humane and focus on the ones who sort of reveled in that environment of brutality. Right. They labeled them the softies. The idea was to you break the softies or you make them not soft anymore, or you at least single them out and remove them. So there is still a cultural divide here, like Chris was talking about, between the Camp SS and the General SS or the Leibstandard. So they were the real elite, right? The death's head units that these guys were part of were sort of mocked as idiots. But there is a lot of class stuff here going on in the background because the general SS, like you see in the Gestapo or like you see in the sort of administration around Himmler, those were young university educated men. And the guard troops tended to be drawn more from a working class background. There was plenty of opportunities for advancement in both branches of the organization and an equally accelerated promotion scheme where the rapid growth of the organization meant that young men could come in at the lowest level and end up at an officer level within two to three years. So that that kind of social mobility that the SS offered and that the guard troop in particular offered to 
working class young men could hardly be compared anywhere else in Germany. Above them, you had the commandant staff, and they came from a slightly different generational composition. They tended to be older. They were often in their 20s or 30s, and they usually came from a paramilitary background where they had been early joiners, old fighters, if you will, uh, experience with the movement prior to 1933, but specifically experience in one of its paramilitary organizations. The early involvement in the movement was the most important part because, for example, at Dachau, eight of the 11 members of the commandant staff held SS numbers below 10,000. So the commandants above them usually came from a military background. Roughly half of the men who commanded concentration camps came from some type of service in the World War. They'd also been military, or they'd also been early joiners for the SS prior to 1932, and they had all been in an officer position by 1933. They themselves reported to ICA and actually had to fill out forms in triplicate every time that they wanted to enforce a punishment but they held absolute authority within the camp. So they leaned on their adjutants who were part of the command staff. And these younger men tended to be the ones who were groomed for advancement and became deputies with great power in their own right within the camp world. And all of these people from the commandant on down to the guard troops were supposed to be political soldiers. And that's language that they used. The idea itself came from Ica, Papa Ica. They saw themselves as, as fighting a war against the enemies of the German people. That even though this, this was not wartime, that they were engaged in a battle. That that's what they were doing. And as political soldiers, they were supposed to you know, have a bond of camaraderie with the other SS men around them, just like you would have at the front, just like the people that had fought in the First World War that were training them had experienced. And there was an attitude directed towards the prisoners that they were the outsiders, that they were excluded from this bond, and that as political soldiers, the guard troops and the staff had an obligation to be hard with the prisoners, even maybe hostile to the prisoners. Although Himmler advanced an idea and attitude that as political soldiers, they should have a proper bearing, that they were supposed to be hard without being cruel. So they should not be, they should not be soft and sympathetic. They shouldn't let any of these prisoners get away with something because they are engaged in a war for the soul of Germany. But Part of that fight for the soul of Germany is protecting their own German character. And this is an idea that Himmler hit on a lot in the depths of some of the most horrible things the Nazi regime was doing, that these concentration camp guards should not enjoy the violence. They shouldn't be sadistic for sadism's sake. Instead, they should be hard but measured. And... There was a catalog of approved punishments developed that was supposed to prevent this kind of over-the-top behavior and adds a sense of legitimacy to the violence that 
did go on within the camps. Ryan, do you have a, what was approved as punishment for the prisoners within the camps? Well, formalization underneath the, the inspectorate of concentration camps saw ICA apply as regulations for punishments across the entire system. These were the ones he came up with way back in 1933 that uh, were what basically Himmler used to sell kind of the legitimate oversight and regulation of the system that really just institutionalized the brutality. The 1933 memo that provided the basis for the, the later ones, few terms you need to understand here before we get into it. It differentiates hard time and penal labor, which carry certain connotations here. So hard time means that you're kept in a cell rather than your barracks. You have a hard bed, which is to say no mattress, no straw. You're just on concrete floor or a wooden board. And all you have to eat is water with a warm meal every four days. The penal labor on top of that meant dirty or particularly hard physical work like construction or like cleaning out latrines. And it would be carried out under special supervision where the guards would, of course, be encouraged to behave particularly brutally. Now, there were also supplementary punishments of exercise, forced exercise, so useless jumping, you know, until you're exhausted and can't move anymore, at which point you then have to go and do more work. Corporal punishment, basic slapping, things like this. Uh, no mail, no food, or hanging in a stress position. This one was particularly brutal the Italian term, I believe, is strappato. But what it is, is you put somebody's arms behind their back, lash them together, and then suspend them by their wrists. And of course, as you can imagine, what that does is begins to dislocate bones, it tears ligaments, it cracks bones, and it permanently disables people. So the reasons that these punishments could be imposed were all regulated. So you could spend three days in hard time for remaining in bed after the alarm sounded or for making it sloppily. You could spend five days in hard time for lying or wearing civilian clothing, five days of hard time and penal labor for missing roll call or missing your work detail without permission or reporting to a doctor with fake symptoms eight days of hard time for making a petition or filing a false report. And then you start to get into the level where corporal punishment becomes involved. Eight days of hard time and 25 blows, that is to say being flogged at the beginning and end of the punishment for malicious remarks, neglecting mandatory salutes, or other indications of defiance, basically disrespecting Nazism or the guards. 14 days of hard time for swapping bunks and blows for leaving the camp without an escort or following a work column out without authorization for praising Marxism or liberalism or any other democratic party or writing about camp conditions in your letters. So it was 42 days of hard time and solitary confinement if you attack the symbols or supporters of the National Socialist State and then finally, if you discussed conditions in the camp or harangued your fellow prisoners, you could be hung as an agitator and shot on the spot if you assaulted a guard. Similarly, if you tried to bribe an SS guard, you would never be released. And finally, if you failed to report anybody for any of these offenses 
you could be punished as if you had done them yourself. So the architect of this ethos and vision for the purpose of the Camp SS was, uh, as you might expect, Ica. And he was responsible for developing this whole approach as the commandant of Dachau, which would be the, the model camp for the rest of the system. And it was there that he worked out how the members of the Camp SS were going to develop, how they were going to live their, their day-to-day. And he merged private and professional lives of the Camp SS in order to bring them together and to get them to function as the political soldiers that he was hoping that they would be. They were supposed to adhere to this this ethos of hardness and unity. And towards that end, there were parts of the day-to-day life that were supposed to encourage this. So there were comradeship evenings, moments when they would come together and engage with each other. And Ica would be very personally involved with his men. He had an open door policy that anyone uh, had a problem or an issue, they were encouraged to come directly to Ica himself and that, that he could facilitate solving that problem. This is very much the leadership principle too, that Ica is taking responsibility for everything that is going on below him. The camp life this creates I suppose you could think of it like a Google campus, but with a much darker day job. All of the free time is spent together on the campgrounds for the most part. There are private swimming pools, bowling alleys, tennis courts, and even a nature reserve at Dachau. The senior officials attached to any camp often bring their families along, and you will have entire family units of two to three children living nearby in SS settlements. So this created the space, like Chris says, where private and professional lives merged. Now, from a theoretical perspective, you may be hearing some echoes here from our discussion about Diary of a Gestapo Executioner or Christopher Browning's seminal work, Ordinary Men. So violence and this us versus them mentality against the prisoners is what binds them together. And it is lubricated with alcohol. So... The slaps and the punches and the kicks are all part about asserting dominance over the prisoners. But more than this, and more than just drinking together to ensure that any remaining scruples are are deadened by alcohol, brutality becomes this self-reinforcing bond between the SS men because it, it serves as evidence of their shared commitment to the worldview that Ica is propounding. Yeah, yeah, it's a way to it's a way to demonstrate your participation by by engaging in violence. It shows that you have internalized the ethos and that you are ready to do something like that in order to be a part of the group. More than that, even violence then becomes social capital. Yeah. So if you if you act on the ideas that Ica is propagating, you are proving yourself man enough for the task and therefore man enough to be trusted with greater responsibilities. Also, it secures recognition and acclaim from your peers. So to be violent, to be brutal was to essentially live the life of a political soldier. And when you are creating this enclosed system uh, within a group of hyper-masculine, hyper-competitive men who are then cut off from the rest of society, 
this creates a cycle of one-upmanship. I can't be outdone by you because then that means I'm soft. So I'll volunteer to do the flogging. And of course, when I send in my request to do the flogging, my superior can't tell me no, because then that will come back and it will look like he doesn't have he doesn't have sufficient commitment. And so he'll say, well, let's just hang him, hang him up in a stress position instead and do him permanent bodily harm for this insignificant infraction or perceived slight. We can't just slap him or uh, have him clean up the cesspit for a week because then that will show me to be soft and that undermines my authority as a commandant. So go ahead, you know, and while he's up there, give him an extra yank on the legs for me. This is what results in these theatrical displays of cruelty you hear about in the camps. Your kameraden are watching. And if you don't come up with some kind of display for your contempt, some kind of like twisted theater of humiliation, you come across as adequate at best and at worst inappropriate. And if you're soft, then that means the end of your career because not only will you be out of the camp SS, you will have a stigma following you around. You had your chance to serve. You had your chance to be part of the elite, but you were rejected. And what's worse, you were rejected for being soft on the degenerates who have been locked away because they are the danger, the greatest danger to the rest of the people's community. And you couldn't even muster up the courage to give them the kind of harsh treatment that they deserve and might actually reform them. So what good are you? You know, weakling, toughen up or get out. That creates the concentration camps as this sort of world apart. And that comes back to this, these sociological points that these other authors are making about how a set of shared values and shared experiences held together by a worldview that is cut off from other people and then continually reinforced mm -hmm. through these types of bonds uh, creates a fear of nonconformity. In a climate of violent masculinity, the, mm -hmm. those who don't conform are the ones who wear panties. Yeah, right? Like that's who, – who wrote that one? Was that Ica or was that Hess? Oh, I'm not sure. But it was one of them. But it's like it, – it's one of the leaders, right? Like – and I mean like Rudolf Hess, right? The future – like th this fear of being seen – to be soft and, and non-conformist reaches from the bottom to the top because you have Hess, the future commandant of Auschwitz, writing after the fact, quote, I wanted to become notorious for being hard so that I would not be considered soft. And so that's where you get these horror stories about people injecting gasoline into prisoners or setting the dogs on them or smashing a baby against a wall. Like these aren't monsters. They're human beings, but they're cut off from the rest of society, adrift in their own moral universe, and self-radicalizing out of fear and peer pressure. Yeah, I think that is the profile of the perpetrator in this galaxy. It is a world apart, defined by violence and by being under the eye of other people that are in a similar situation. But I mean, like you can see it across all of the institutions of the Third Reich that are involved in the nastiest work. And, you know, if you want to understand why de-radicalization programs are important and how institutions become involved in this type of behavior, look no further, you know? All right. So I, I think that, that that's a pretty good profile of the, the perpetrators here. But we should talk a, a bit about the victims. We've already 
discussed the the political prisoners and uh, the habitual criminals and and the asocials, but and it's important to note that that these weren't just kind of rough categories that that were rounded up at different times. That these were were formalized distinctions between different groups of victims, and that those distinctions shaped the experience of the people who were in the camps themselves. Mm-hmm. So what's the triangle system? So the triangle system was how different categories of prisoners were marked. And it underwent an evolution, but it did solidify, it became standardized uh, between 1937 and 1938. And the idea was that there would be a visual marker that was easily identifiable from a distance that indicates what kind of person each prisoner was. So in order to mark the prisoners, they would wear different color triangles depending on why they had been brought to the camps in the first place. And it would be displayed prominently uh, on their chest. Uh, Jews who were in the camp would have another triangle underneath the first uh, inverted so that it was pointing down in order to form a Star of David. But the foreground triangle would be the color of whatever category the Jewish prisoner was. So uh, the colors and categories were red for political prisoner, purple for Jehovah's Witness, green for habitual criminals, black for asocials, pink for homosexuals, and blue for foreigners. So the experience that you would have very much depended on what type of group identity your triangle afforded you. A lot of political prisoners among the communists and among the socialists who were put into the camp wearing the red triangle immediately had a sense of community and a support network for them when they arrived. Same would hold true for Jehovah's Witnesses. When you were brought into the camp, there was an immediate group that you could recognize and prison rules of a sort apply that you stick with your own and you have a group around you that is looking out for you that if you get sick, will carry you to roll call so that you don't get a punishment that worsens your condition, that will cover for you or ensure that the worst abuses of the camp are mitigated or compensated for in some way through the community. And even beyond that, uh, because these camps are set up to be self-administering to a very large extent, a strong network inside the camp could put you in a position to get a spot in camp leadership, a capo position, for example, where you would be an administrator inside the camp as a prisoner who is going to enjoy privileges because of that and who will also be able to avoid some abuse because of that. And the political prisoners in particular, the, the red triangles, were very successful in securing these kinds of positions because of their internal connections and because they'd been they'd been the first group that had been brought in. They'd been there since the beginning. That they had stronger relationships and deeper roots. The inverse held true if you came from one of the groups that didn't really enjoy a shared identity. So the green triangles and the black triangles, the habitual criminals or professional criminals and the asocials, because they were so diverse, 
did not have the same sense of shared solidarity and shared experience. Uh, if you were brought in as a criminal, then there was some sense of solidarity in that you were a group, but not the same that you would see under the political prisoners. The primary source of solidarity was merely that you as a green triangle were looked down upon by the red triangles. And so that it did enforce a certain sense of group identity in that respect. But if you were a black triangle, that covered basically every type of socially marginalized person in Germany. So you have such a wide range of people who are brought in under the black triangle as a social that you, they are the group that struggles the most to have any sense of solidarity and any sense of, uh, of a, of a sustaining network. But if, if you look at the way that, that the pink triangles, homosexuals were treated, they were distinguished from other asocials even further and typically it was it was men that would get the, the pink triangle a few homosexual women were arrested as asocials and brought into the camps but the men that were brought into the camps for being homosexuals were thoroughly stigmatized by even the other prisoners that they were uh, more closely watched more harshly punished than anyone else uh, and were largely isolated held in separate locations in the camp because there was an attitude that they're, they're going to pollute everybody else. Even when these group classifications afforded a shared identity that would create a network, it could still be undermined by divisions within it. So political prisoners, the primary example here, because the schism from the Weimar Republic was always that the communists saw themselves as the true resistance to Nazism. Well, social Democrats were quote, the left wing of fascism, because they had worked with the ethno-nationalists to suppress communist revolts in 1919 and the rise of the party again in 1923-24. So even within the Red Triangle group, there was a division between communists and socialists that would play out in this, again, along prison rules of a different group and a different sense of identity and solidarity within that group. You mentioned the capo system, though, Chris, and I, this is really what's important to understand part of how your life would be regulated. So could you tell us a bit more about that? And so the, the whole idea behind capos was it was it was part of a divide and rule strategy that you could turn the prisoners into a resource and use them, turn the prisoners against themselves uh, and use them to discipline and oversee one another. And this wasn't necessarily an innovation of the concentration camp system. It had been used in the prison system in the, the Weimar period when prisoner, prisoners would act as, as clerks and whatnot. But the whole capo system uh, took this to another level, that, that there was a parallel organizational structure inside the camp alongside the SS guards and arguably even more important than than the SS guards because remember all that guard staff they are not inside the camp it is just the commandant and the commandant staff that are actually inside the camp coming into regular contact with the prisoners it is the capos that are doing a whole lot of the dirty work inside the wire and there were, were three kind of distinct roles that they might fill. They could be uh, work supervisors, foremen, or 
someone who's going to be administering punishment if work is not proceeding as it should be. Another role that they could take on was a supervisor of the living quarters. So they would be overseeing what's happening inside the barrack itself, making sure that in the morning that uh, everyone is going through the the routine of uh, getting everything in ship shape before they go off to uh, roll call and looking out for contraband and the like. Uh, Or they could be administrative capos, so involved in the the day-to-day running of the camp itself. All of this means that you have a prisoner at all times who is watching another prisoner. There are even bunk elders, like Chris is pointing out with some of these elders, who have their own networks that then go down into the separate rooms, all of who report up the pyramid to somebody whose head is on the line if something happens. Remember, ICA's regulations that we were talking about earlier means that if you hear something and you don't report it, you can be punished as the perpetrator, which obviously carries all of the terrible punishments we were talking about before. So at no point is there a break in the chain where there is another prisoner watching another prisoner responsible for making sure that they toe the line. A position like this is also rife for abuse of power. Some capos use their position to make the lives of their charges more bearable. Others use it to look out for their group at the, to the disadvantage of other groups. And others used it for their own comfort, but they're constantly caught in this kind of precarious balance between an insurrection from the prisoners that are under them and punishment from the SS men above them. So it it was a position that carried great advantages within the camp system, but also one that carried great risks. Yeah, and it, and it is itself political. The, the capos had an interest in maintaining their position, which meant they had to please those above them like you say, without driving those below them to a riot. And it implicated them in the system as a whole, that they became complicit. And you can debate the ethics of it, whether you are morally culpable for what you do in in an environment as horrific as the concentration camps, but but they did have to participate. Yeah, so it's, it's probably one of the more interesting sociological features of the whole mechanism, you know? and one that really defines your daily life. Yeah. What was daily life like from the the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? What did prisoners go through? Well, by the mid-1930s, the definite contours of daily routine have really emerged and begun to take shape in the camps. So the SS would switch things up in terms of your work assignments and in terms of what prisoners were doing in order to keep them off balance and in order to prevent any type of escape attempt. But the basic outlines are pretty set in stone by the period that we're talking about. What you're talking about here is a a regimented, almost hour by hour breakdown of what is expected of the prisoners. And, And they are expected to be in a specific place at a specific time doing a specific thing. So they got up real early. We're talking four o'clock in the morning. They would have to get up, out of the beds, have breakfast, which was usually pretty meager. We're talking about bread, some gruel, maybe tea or coffee or, or ersatz coffee. And once they had had, had completed that, uh, they would also need to, to clean up the barracks, do bed building, uh, get everything into military order, 
within the barracks itself. And much of the daily life of the prisoners had this character. For example, would they follow that up with uh, a march to roll call, where they would stand at attention. And standing at attention while they were counted could be just itself very harrowing, because if there was a miscount or if someone was actually missing, then they would have to remain at attention. And we're talking about people who are not getting enough calories, that are, are getting overworked, that they're not getting enough sleep. So it is difficult just to stand there. And the strong supported the weak, but unless you were so sick that you were in the, the infirmary, you had to be there for roll call. This is also where punishments would be administered for anyone who had committed some kind of infraction against discipline. Because one of the functions of punishment is not just to hurt the person who had committed the infraction, but to show everyone else what would happen if they did the same. The target of the discipline is the entire camp population. After having gone through the ritual of the count and the capo handing out or noting some types of punishment, the work assignments would then be handed out and prisoners would be marched double time to their workplace, which as we've discussed in the overview episode was oftentimes outside of the, outside of the camp. So the week time work schedule was essentially most daytime hours, the whole process of rising and bed building and going through the count all occurred before dawn. And then the moment that you reached at the work site, you were working the entire day, often being jostled along by the guards to perform the activity as fast as possible. The only break would be vegetable stew with a bit of bread for lunch. That was common. And you were allowed one cigarette at that point. And of course, with the type of work that you're doing, often hard labor, and the type of nutrition you're being uh, provided, extreme weight loss was common, but it was not yet at starvation levels. It was still sufficient to sustain life for the time being. But that was also because prisoners were allowed to receive small sums of money from outside the camp to then make purchases in a canteen for things like butter, small toiletries, biscuits, just a few things that could supplement their supplement their nutrition. As you might expect, cigarettes were also available and served as a form of ersatz currency within the camps. Now, after the day was over and you had then spent the entire afternoon and early evening working, depending on whether you're in, whether it's summer or winter, the daylight hours, you would return to the camp for the evening roll call, which is an even more harrowing affair because you've just spent the whole day working and are now exhausted and yet are required to stand at attention again. Guards would often prolong this process just as a way to add suffering to the prisoners' lives. And then finally, when the same routine that Chris had outlined for the morning was finally completed, prisoners would retire to their barracks for dinner consisting of a soup or bread and cheese. Uh, sometimes there would then be this sort of additional work inside the compound, chores, personal hygiene, or cleaning up. But these could serve as social hours because they occurred within the barracks where conversation could occur rather than on a work site where there were strict rules against speaking to other prisoners. So taps would then sound around eight or nine o'clock at night, and then 
everybody would go to their quarters, read, write letters, something like that. And then a siren would sound for lights out. And at that point, anyone found outside of barracks would be shot on sight. That was the weekly routine, but Sundays were a bit different. On Sundays, the prisoners were at least uh, spared uh, the hardship of doing outside labor. They would still go through the, the normal morning routine, but rather than being marched out of the camp to a work site, they would complete chores inside the camp itself. And this seems to have been a, a kind of a, a space that was intended to indoctrinate uh, because they would listen to speeches broadcast over loudspeakers while they were going through this routine doing chores inside the camp. But it wasn't just about this this kind of more domestic work on Sundays. They also were permitted to attend religious services early on in the camp system. Although after the regime had its confrontation with the churches in the mid-1930s, uh, that practice was abandoned. But even still, there was some free time on Sundays, some opportunity for respite and socializing. Board games were common, but there was a whole cultural life that took place within the camps, uh, and particularly on this one day of the week when there was an opportunity to express it. The kind of things that would make up this cultural life uh, were performances in many cases, uh, camp orchestras, uh, cabaret that early on even made fun of the guards, uh, although this became less common. That was only in 1933, though. But that never disappeared altogether. I remember seeing a port about a, a Christmas performance in, I want to say it was 1943 or 1944, that the prisoners in a concentration subcamp uh, were putting on for the guards. So even very late in the war, there was still this really kernel of humanity that persisted in this little bit of space in the camps. Beyond that, this was also a time when uh, the prisoners could reach out to the outside world through letters and postcards, although these were, were heavily censored and always read, but they were at least a proof of life uh, for families on the outside, as long as prisoners were careful to censor themselves before they sent these postcards out. By 1938, and Kristallnacht, we finally see this defined pre-war concentration camp system come into being. From this early concentration of power under Himmler through the continuing decline of the camps and then commitment from Hitler and Himmler to making them an integral institution to the plans of the Third Reich. And then the broader shift from political prisoners to continued focus on a small minority of really recidivist political opponents to a broader focus on asocials and criminals. We're finally seeing the concentration camp system as we know it prior to the war come into focus. Yeah. All of the, the most important components of you know, the institutional culture in, in both the guards and, and in the prisoners, the categories, the structure of the camps, many of the, the camp locations, the day-to-day -day routine, all of this has developed by this point. But it is still 
it's still just a seedling. That the population of the concentration camps is still very tiny compared to what it will be, and the war has not yet come along to, if not transform the structure of the camps, transform the extremity of what is possible and the brutality and suffering that could take place inside. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Chris and I would just like to take a moment to thank everybody. We've just passed 1,300 subscribers, which continues to completely outstrip our wildest expectations when we first started this almost two years, well, actually not almost, but two years ago now. We hope that it serves and will continue to serve as a resource for people who also believe that this is a subject that is important, not just to remember, but to really understand given the circumstances of the present day. We do rely on you to expand that audience. So if you haven't subscribed, please consider doing so. Just being subscribed helps raise the profile of the podcast so that it's easier to discover for other people who are interested in history more generally and this subject specifically. We've also agreed that a year is way too long between installments on specific series, though. So uh, you can look forward to a part three in the concentration camp series. Maybe not next time but certainly sometime within the next 12 months. So uh, yeah, I guess uh, attainable goals are important, right? All joking aside, we would like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.